The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm Brian Sullivan, and you're listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. Our show airs live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. It is 5 a.m. here at CNBC Global Headquarters, and here is your 5 at 5. We begin with debt deal optimism lifting Wall Street with stocks coming off their best day in two weeks. Futures getting a boost this morning. Front and center this morning also retail after Target's cautious outlook cast a cloud over the sector. This morning, it is Walmart's turn. Overseas, a split decision on the outlook for Chinese equities as Alibaba gets set to report its results. We lay out the bull and the bear case. Plus, preparing for an M&A boom in an unlikely part of a global energy sector. Look at the names that should be on your radar ahead. And then later in the show, gauging the AI impact and how this controversial tech is upending healthcare. It is Thursday, May 18th, 2023. You're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Good morning. Welcome to Worldwide Exchange. I'm Frank Holland. Thanks for starting your day with us. Let's kick off the hour with a check on U.S. stock futures. This morning, as we mentioned, they are moving higher, fractionally higher right now. The Dow basically flat, but just ticking a bit higher. The S&P and the Nasdaq, very similar story. This after a strong showing for stocks yesterday, with the major averages posting their best day in two weeks. We are also checking the bond market, looking at those yields as we always do. <clears throat> Excuse me. Let's begin with the 10-year note. The 10-year note right now at 3.58. Those yields ticking up this month. Looking at the two-year note as well. This yield also moving up this month now at 4.16. Just about a week ago, it was actually just a tick below 4%. We also are eyeing the, uh, the short end of the bond curve this morning. As we always do, we've been doing in recent days specifically this one-month note Looking at this right now at 5.703. Big move to the upside this month alone. More, the yield more than a percent higher in May alone. About 1.25% when it comes to yield from the very beginning of the month. The two-month, the three-month, also above 5%. Same story for the four-month. All right, we're looking at the energy sector as well. We're going to talk a lot more about energy later, but right now we're focusing on oil. Looking at WTI crude, the U.S. benchmark, basically at 72.5, but down about a half a percent this morning. Brent crude, the international benchmark, Basically, at 76 and a half, also down more than a half a percent this morning. Natural gas fractionally lower. All right. Breaking news right now. Take a look. These are live pictures. President Biden in Hiroshima, Japan, for the start of the annual G7 summit. The president holding a bilateral meeting with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida. We're going to bring you the headlines throughout the hour from this meeting. But again, these are live pictures. President Biden just sitting down with the Japanese Prime Minister at the beginning or his start of the G7 summit in Hiroshima. All right, looking around the world right now, green arrows overnight in Asia with stocks in Japan popping more than 1%. The trading in Europe just getting underway this morning. We're seeing green arrows across the board in Europe as well. The German DAX, the best performer, up almost a percent and a half. All right, let's get a check on this morning's top corporate stories. Our Pippa Stevens is here with those. Pippa, good morning. Good morning, Frank. We'll start in here with Netflix, which says it has nearly 5 million monthly active users on its ad-supported tier globally since launching some six months ago. Speaking during a virtual upfront presentation, Netflix co-CEO Greg Peters says the tier's member base has more than doubled since January. 
And Montana is now the first U.S. state banning TikTok within its borders. In a new law signed by Governor Greg Gianforte yesterday, starting January 1st next year, it will be illegal for Apple and Google's App Store to offer TikTok as a digital download, but does not penalize anyone for actually using the app. Legal experts expect TikTok parent company ByteDance to challenge the law, though no official word from the company just yet. And Paramount Global chairwoman Sherry Redstone is betting big on her stock, buying up $2.5 million worth of shares earlier this week, according to new filings. This comes as the stock hovers near a fresh 52-week low following a rough earnings report earlier this month. Those shares, Frank, up about 1% right now. Yeah, but uh, down 7% year-to-date, Pippa. Yep. <laughs> All right, Pippa Stevens, thank you very much. We're going to see you much more later on the show. All right, now turning back to Wall Street. Tech continued to outperform the broader markets with the XLK Tech Spider ETF hitting a new 52-week high for the third straight day, its highest level since April of 2022. Keyside Tech, ServiceNow, on semiconductor and applied materials, all leading that ETF higher. With Broadcom, Salesforce, Lamb Research, and Oracle, all of them hitting new 52-week highs this week. The moves come as growth stocks rebound. The interest around AI and expectations of a potential pause in the Fed's rate hiking campaign driving that trade higher. Joining me now to discuss, Gina Sanchez, Tanchika Global CEO and a CNBC contributor. Gina, great to see you as always. Thank you. So I think the question here is, Gina, is the growth trade back? Well, you know, it, it depends on, on how you think that, that this is going to play out. We're headed into a slowdown. That is unquestionable. But some of what has been pushing this tech story has been looking past this recession into the long-term trends, you know, these trends like cloud, trends like, you know, open AI and, and what that means for productivity. And so we have continued to see demand um, in that space and, quite frankly, demand by investors to hold these names. Um, and... If you look at how the stock market is acting, we've actually been trading the, the, the really defensive sectors like healthcare and utilities. They're really expensive right now. Um, and so we've actually been sort of rotating out of that into things like consumer discretionary. But tech has actually continued to remain somewhat expensive through this, through this space. And if you believe the long run trajectories, they aren't that expensive. So if you're an investor, this is still an OK time to wade into something like Google or, or Microsoft. So right now we're seeing some optimistic signs when it comes to the debt limit deal. But in the near term, short term bonds are elevated, showing a lot of investors don't feel confident in equities right now. How do you see this debt limit deal, the continuing negotiations impacting the market? Does it change your view on any particular sectors? Look, no, I, I think that the that that um, the, the debt limit talks represent short term volatility at the best and a real dislocation to the market at the worst. So it doesn't necessarily change kind of where we think we're going on, on, on average. We think that we're headed into a slowdown and assuming that we don't hit a real dislocation with the, with the debt ceiling talks, then we should actually head into that and head into either a mild recession or a growth recession. And the story on that is still the same, which is that you have to figure out how to participate in the segments of the market that are still reasonably priced and can defend and participate on the other side of this recession. Okay, what about portfolio protection? Uh, the debt limit negotiation, that's not the only risk to the market right now. We continue to have inflation, historically high rates. What are you advising your clients to do right now to protect their portfolios? 
Look, right now it's a really tough time um, to create protection in the portfolio, short of putting on actual options trades, which is what we've been recommending to a lot of our clients is to think about collaring their portfolio. Um, because there is enough optimism in the market that you can still get a bid and get some protection to the downside if you give up a little bit of your upside. So that's one way to do it. The problem that we have with most sort of portfolio strategies is, like I said, the really defensive sectors are very highly priced at this point. And so it's very hard to justify buying healthcare and utilities and discretionary where they are right now. In fact, the best earnings that we're seeing are coming out of places like consumer discretionary, things that would normally get hit. But with all the wage growth that we're seeing, we have to sort of think that this is not going to be a usual recession. All right, Gina Sanchez, thank you very much. Appreciate you being here. Also, don't miss your chance to join Gina and other top advisors, investors, market experts, technologists, and economists at the Virtual Financial Summit on June 15th, where they will discuss the market risk ahead, potential buying opportunities, and tools that advisors can use to generate consistent returns while minimizing the downside. Scan the QR code to register or visit cnbcevents.com slash financial advisor. All right, turning now to Washington and investors holding out hope that lawmakers will close in on a debt ceiling deal before that so-called X date on June 1st. President Biden offering an optimistic, uh, after an optimistic meeting with House Speaker McCarthy earlier this week, Landing in Japan this morning for the annual G7 summit, as we showed you just a short time ago, he is currently meeting with Japan's prime minister. NBC's Bree Jackson joins me now from Washington. Bree, good morning. Good morning, Frank. So before leaving Washington on Wednesday, President Biden did express an optimistic picture about the debt ceiling talks, expressing confidence that negotiators would reach a deal. But some Democrats are pushing for the president to raise the debt ceiling without congressional authorization. President Biden in Japan, focusing on foreign issues amid optimism in debt ceiling talks back home. Every leader in the room understands the consequences if we fail to pay our bills, and it would be catastrophic for the, uh, for the American economy and the American people. But now we're along such a short timeline, it makes it almost harder. While he is cutting his overseas trip short, critics blasted the president, saying he waited until the last minute to negotiate directly with GOP leaders. Accept the fact that we must change how this town spends money. Inaction and intransigence will not wipe away $32 trillion in debt. Some Democrats appear frustrated with negotiations and urge the president to invoke the 14th Amendment, arguing it would be unconstitutional for the government to not pay its bills. I do think it's very, very, very important that the president keep his constitutional option uh, on the table in case negotiations break down. Experts say doing so could spark a bitter legal fight. For now, both sides appear focused on reaching a compromise. I'm hopeful the president's team will join House Republicans to produce a responsible spending agreement. We're going to come together because there's no alternative. Negotiators have less than two weeks to either find a solution or risk a first ever debt default. And today, Vice President Harris will provide an update on the debt ceiling and the potential impacts of a default. Frank. All right, our Bree Jackson live in D.C. Bree, thank you very much. A lot more to come here on Worldwide Exchange, including the one word that investors just have to know today. But first, gauging the AI impact and how the controversial tech is upending a major part of the U.S. economy. 
Plus, we lay out the bull and the bear case for Chinese stocks as Alibaba gets set to report its results and later. Cloudy skies hang over retail as Walmart gets set to open its books. We have a very busy hour still ahead when Worldwide Exchange returns. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. EdwardJones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. The AI space and the continued advancements the technology is making in a number of critical spaces, that includes the medical field and the surgical field and the doctor's ability to make life or death decisions in real time. Julia Borston takes a closer look at the rewards and the potential risk. Surgeons making life and death decisions in real time are no longer operating on their own. They now have an AI safety net. Dr. Matthew Tollefson, a Mayo Clinic urologist, is one of hundreds of doctors at over a dozen hospitals across the country using what startup Theater calls its surgical intelligence in the operating room. The most fascinating part of this is we get this information in real time. Theater, which has raised over $42 million from the Mayo Clinic and VCs, advises doctors starting with pre-op decisions about techniques. Then it records surgeries, comparing the video to previous similar procedures to identify which decisions yield the best outcomes. We're enabling pattern recognition at, uh, at a scale that's never been seen before, learning from that in order to be able to inform you know, surgeons moving forward on the best approach to a certain situation. Dr. Tolufson says reviewing and analyzing surgery videos can sometimes take surgeons months, but this AI helps them instantly jump to key moments. We can perhaps predict things like if I make an incision here, this could potentially mean something else for a patient. It could predict a complication. It could predict maybe cancer recurrence or some things that are really critical to how we do surgery. AI isn't just being used in the operating room, but also by emergency responders. Okay, he is he unconscious? Uh, evidently, yeah, I can't get any response. Okay. AI-powered Corti focuses on emergency medicine. It listens in on calls, analyzing voice and background noises, alerting medical professionals about any help the caller might need, like if a person is having a heart attack. It equips nurses and paramedics with real-time suggestions. But like in any new technology, there are risks. And in healthcare, patient confidentiality is always a top concern. And that has been a big focus for companies applying AI in the medical space. But many doctors see the upside from AI as massive. Frankly, I think most of these major obstacles are really addressed. And I think um, the sky is really the limit for where this technology can go. 
This kind of AI that is informed by a fixed data set and also designed for use by professionals is so different from the chat GPT model that has captured the imagination of so many people and also raised so many concerns. Frank, over to you. All right, that was our Julia Borston reporting. Ahead here on Worldwide Exchange, your big money movers, including a sharp move higher for Grand Theft Automaker, Take-Two Interactive. Plus, it's the big shorts Michael Burry versus Warren Buffett on the future of Chinese equities. We're going to give you the full story when we return. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Fame hedge fund manager Michael Burry may be betting big on China with new bets on names like Alibaba and JD.com. But the rest of the Wall Street is actually growing more skeptical about the world's second largest economy after three years of strict COVID lockdowns and a recent string of disappointing economic data. The latest, J.P. Morgan Chase reducing its annual GDP target, saying the recent data points to, quote, a big loss in recovery momentum. That is a sentiment shared at Nomura. The team there also reducing their GDP target saying they see a rising risk of slower activity growth and rising unemployment. And it's not just the big banks. As you heard on CNBC earlier this week, Elon Musk is also watching China and the growing tensions with the U.S. Musk telling our David Faber that issues in China should be a, quote, concern for everyone. Then there's Warren Buffett selling a stake in Taiwan Semiconductor, despite it being what he calls a fabulous enterprise. Buffett is also concerned about the growing geopolitical tensions in the region. All this as Chinese e-commerce giant Alibaba prepares to report results in just over an hour from now. While moves in that stock this year, just one indicator of the split investor sentiment in the region. Let's talk a lot more about this with Brendan Ahern, chief investment officer at Crane Funds Advisors. Great to see you, Brendan. Hey, good morning, Frank. All right. So what is your, your view right now on China's overall economy and on Chinese equities? On an absolute basis, China's economy is coming out of a trough after uh, the Q4 removal of zero COVID. So China is on a path of recovery, Frank. It's going to be an incremental recovery, really driven by domestic consumption, very different from past rebounds in China, which have historically been driven by export-driven manufacturing, which is slowing as the global economy slows, as well as it's going to be less infrastructure-intensive, less building-intensive Uh, So a little bit of a different type of recovery, which is why we think it'll be an incremental recovery over the course of 2023. So you're mentioning export focused manufacturing. How does the nearshoring efforts not only here in the U.S., but in Europe, how does that impact the Chinese economy? Well, I think the the big headwind for Chinese manufacturing is less nearshoring, but more just uh, lessening demand. You know, you've got a 60 percent chance of a recession in both the United States and Europe. And that means people are going to be very likely spending less. So, so it's more of that that effect. In terms of nearshoring, it rolls off the lips, but it's very difficult to do, uh, as well as there's a really an environmental consequence to uh, a lot of the manufacturing that China does. I just think there's no appetite for someone to have a rare earth processor in their town. I mean, raise your hand if you'd like to see <laughs> that. Uh, I doubt it. Yeah, I think a lot of towns would uh, decline that option very much so. Um, we often talk about bell, well, I can't get the words out today, Brendan, bellwether <laughs> stocks here on Worldwide Exchange. I think Alibaba counts as one for China reports in just about an hour from now. What's that report going to tell us about China overall? And what do you expect the company to say about its spinoff plans? 
Yeah, yeah, 100%. I mean, Alibaba is an important company because it is so geared to the that domestic consumption story. We've seen from JD.com uh, that they mentioned that their Q2 merchandise sales is actually faster than Q1. Uh, so JD, a competitor, looking pretty good there. Badu on Tuesday talked about advertising revenue picking up. Yesterday, we had Tencent talk about a domestic consumption recovery. So I think that bar is increasing for for Alibaba um, in terms of it's so geared to this domestic consumption story. So so really, you know, we're looking at revenue of almost 209 billion RMB, which is about just doing the math here, about uh, just about 22 billion U.S. So you're doing so a lot of math. The, it's early. One last yeah, quick question. I appreciate it. I want to come full circle. We talked about Warren Buffett pivoting away from China. We talked about Michael Burry, according to 13 F's, kind of doubling down. Should the average investor pay attention to these moves by these big, uh, big time investors? Is there something we can learn very quickly from either one of them? Well, I mean, Berkshire Hathaway is still a big stakeholder in uh, the Chinese electric vehicle maker, BYD. So uh, very, very successful position for them. So they're still heavily involved in China, as well as Berkshire Hathaway, heavily geared to U.S. multinationals such as Apple, which derive more than 20 percent of their revenue. So it just shows diplomats from both the U.S. as well as from the China side need to get on an airplane, start talking to one another, because we have so much as investors globally Uh, to lose if this relationship continues to fray. All right, Brendan Ahern, great to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you, Frank. All right, time now for a check on this morning's other headlines. NBC's Francis Rivera is in New York with the very latest. Francis, good morning. Hi, Frank. Good morning to you. We start with Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, who could become a presidential candidate as soon as next week. As NBC News first reported, DeSantis is running against the clock. He must announce his 2024 plans within two weeks due to disclosure requirements. The state GOP announced his political staff moved to a new base of operations in Tallahassee this week. While most polls show DeSantis DeSantis trails former President Trump in a Republican primary. He is widely seen as Mr. Trump's strongest rival. Meanwhile, on Capitol Hill, George Santos's future in politics is in the hands of the House Ethics Committee. The House voted on a referral, which allows Republicans to avoid a vote on the resolution itself. Last week, Santos pleaded not guilty to federal charges, including wire fraud, money laundering, and theft of public funds. From the halls of Congress to the streets of New York, Prince Harry and his wife Meghan, the Duchess of Sussex, say they were in a, quote, near-catastrophic car chase with paparazzi Tuesday night in New York City. The couple, along with Meghan's mother, were followed by photographers after they left a charity event in Midtown. Police call the scene chaotic but deny any near-collision. So you've got the versions being near, uh, what did they say? They said it was a near-catastrophic chase, and then you say the police calling it chaos. So somewhere in there is is the real deal, Frank. Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of people are kind of pointing to what happened to Princess Diana and and somewhat reminiscent of that. Obviously, a much better outcome. They both got where they were trying to go safely. Mm -hmm. Francis, great to see you. Thank you very much. Sure thing. All right, as we head to break, check out shares of PacWest Bancorp building on yesterday's sizable gains. After it, another regional bank saw their best day of gains since January of 2021. Look at his shares right now, up over 5.5% and much more Worldwide Exchange coming up after this break. Stay with us. It is right around 5.30 a.m. here in the New York City area, and we are just getting started here on Worldwide Exchange. Here is what's still on deck. We're getting the latest gauge on the health of the consumer. Walmart results are coming up. Uh, they're coming off some concerning signals from two other retail giants. As worries around the economy bubble up, 
we lay out the fresh ideas to protect your portfolio, including why our next guest is turning overseas for opportunity. And ahead of the G7 summit, some of the world's biggest chip makers are looking to Japan to boost their output and to counter China's semiconductor strategy. It is Thursday, May the 18th, and you're watching Worldwide Exchange right here on CNBC. Welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Thanks for starting your day with us. Let's pick up the half an hour with the check on U.S. stock futures. As we mentioned earlier, futures are solidly in the green across the board. S&P, Dow, and NASDAQ all up, you know, a couple uh, uh, percentage points here. A strong start to the morning. We're also looking at the bond market, checking yields as we always do. We begin with the 10-year benchmark um, at 3.59, the two-year note at 4.17. That two-year note yield has moved back above 4% just uh, about a week ago. It was below 4%. And as we told you yesterday, we told you about that deal between Russia and Ukraine, which allows Ukraine to export millions of tons of grain across the Black Sea, was set to expire today. Well, Turkey and the U.N., they brokered a new two-month extension just moments ago, the Kremlin confirming that extension. All right, let's get a check on some of this morning's top stories. Pippa Stevens is here with those. Pippa, good morning. Hello again, Frank. Well, seven of the world's largest semiconductor makers are laying out plans to increase their manufacturing presence in Japan. The prime minister of that country meeting with the heads of Intel, Micron, Taiwan Semi and Samsung, among others, in Tokyo today as Japan tries to revive its chip sector. That meeting coming ahead of the G7 summit with China set to be a main focus and President Biden expected to push allies to counter Beijing's own semi strategy. Meantime, Deutsche Bank agreeing to pay $75 million to victims of Jeffrey Epstein. The payment settles a lawsuit accusing the bank of enabling and benefiting from Epstein's sex trafficking of young women. In 2020, Deutsche Bank agreed to pay a $150 million fine to New York's financial regulator for its dealings with Epstein and other issues. And Charles Schwab is reportedly turning to the credit market to raise $2.5 billion in debt. According to the Wall Street Journal, citing a regulatory filing, the brokerage giant is looking to use money from the offering for general corporate purposes. The apparent move coming as Schwab's finances have faced scrutiny in the wake of the banking sector's recent turmoil. Those, that's back down about 2% right now, Frank. All right, Pippa Stevens, we'll see you in just a bit. All right, now turning back to the consumer, Walmart preparing to report fiscal Q1 earnings in just over an hour. After Home Depot and Target said shoppers pull back on big ticket items and discretionary purchases. As the nation's largest grocer, Walmart may be in a stronger position compared to its peers, with nearly 60 percent of its annual sales in the U.S. coming from grocery. Walmart did, however, give a weaker than expected full year outlook back in February. Let's talk much more about this with Oliver Chen, Senior Equity Research Analyst in Retail and Luxury Goods at TD Cowan. Oliver, great to see you. Frank, great being here. Good morning. All right. So we're just pointing to the percentage of revenue that Walmart gets from grocery. Does that mean we're going to see a much different report than some of its other peers in the retail space, especially Target? That's true, Frank. We've seen a weaker, more cautious report from Target. Specifically, the discretionary categories are running down mid to low, low double digits. On the other hand, essentials such as food, beauty, and household products at Target were running better. Uh, the grocery percentage of mix being about 60% at Walmart's, a strong positive in terms of stability, uh, and that's a section of the business that's working. The other positive for Walmart is Walmart really stands for value in everyday low prices. Of course, a pressured, considered, choiceful consumer is looking for more value. Also, Walmart is getting higher-end customers. As you think about Walmart Plus curbside pickup, a lot of the innovation that Walmart's doing with higher degrees of convenience, 
they're also getting a wealthier customer that doesn't even have to enter the store uh, in many respects, given this omni revolution we're having in retail. Yeah, you're talking about this revolution in retail. I want to talk about something that's changing pretty much every sector, AI. How does AI impact Walmart, specifically its plans to compete with Amazon when it comes to its marketplace business and its e-commerce business? Yeah, you're bringing up a great point, Frank, in terms of what's happening with the future of retail. Artificial intelligence uh, really depends upon large data sets and personalization. Walmart is the U.S.'s biggest grocer. Uh, personalization, our shopping habits, what we do in this move uh, from predictive to prescriptive analytics, where Walmart really knows what you want before you even know, will be a big part of the future. How is that happening uh, through the mobile interfaces, through Walmart Plus, the loyalty program, and through the frequency of grocery shopping? So we're excited about what will happen going forward for AI. And as we think about Amazon, uh, the future of retail is, is bricks, clicks, and portals, but thinking about physical meets digital. And 90% of the U.S. is within 10 miles of a physical Walmart. This is a real physical retail year we have with the reopening. Uh, so AI holds tons of promise. And the bottom line is personalization and the shopping experience, making it easier, as well as thinking about robotics and the entire supply chain. That's a big deal, too. And advertising. Advertising is a big deal in terms of taking dollars away from digital platforms and, and okay. putting those dollars into ecosystems. A lot of big deals for Walmart. It is a big company. So I'm going to ask you ahead of its report, what is your rating? What's your price target for Walmart? Yeah, we're excited. We have a, a 180 price target. We, uh, we're looking for a 5% comp, and um, it's our pick ahead of target in terms of how we're thinking about uh, what we prefer. Uh, we rate them both outperform, but again, Walmart being a very uh, prominent grocer is a big deal to us in terms of what we uh, what we like. All right, Oliver Chen, 180 price target on Walmart, 20% upside from here. Thank you very much. Appreciate the insight. Great being here. All right, coming up, the mining industry facing a recent wave of record-breaking M&A activity, and it could be facing even more. The race for white gold intensifies. We will explain. But first, as we had to break, some of your morning's big money movers. We start with Cisco. Shares falling after the networking giant increased profit guidance for the year and maintained the upper limit of its revenue forecast. But it did say that orders declined by 23% year over year. Cisco's CFO noting that orders fell as customers absorbed prior shipments before placing new orders. Shares of Cisco down more than 3.5%. A different story for Take-Two Interactive. Shares rising on a revenue beat and a strong 2025 fiscal year outlook. For this video game maker, Take-Two CEO says rising prices for consumer staples have led gamers to be more prudent when it comes to spending, which benefits its catalog of bargain titles and blockbuster games. Shares of Take-Two uh, more than 10% higher this morning. And Sony says it's considering relisting shares of its financial services arm. A potential move would reverse its $3.7 billion decision made just three years ago to fully consolidate the business within the entertainment group. Shares of Sony up more than 6%. Worldwide Exchange, back in just a moment. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your morning call sheet where we check on a few of the morning's biggest upgrades and downgrades by firms you know and that I'm on stocks that you likely own. We begin with Roth MKM upgrading its rating and price target on Snap-on. Moving from neutral to buy, the firm saying it has a greater level of confidence in the durability of Snap-on's business model. Even in the event of a potential recession, shares up over a half a percent this morning. We have another upgrade for you. This one, UBS on Albemarle, raising its, its rating from neutral to buy and its price target from $196 to $255 per share. UBS citing the current inflection in China lithium pricing and increasingly positive sentiment on that stock. That stock up more than 1.5% this morning. 
Well, UBS not alone in its enthusiasm over lithium mining. Companies are sitting on a whole lot of cash after last year's surge in commodity prices. And that, in turn, is fueling a boom in M&A activity, including in the lithium sector. Our Pippa Stevens is here with that story. Pippa? Well, that's right, Frank. And last week, lithium companies Liven and Alchem announced their merger in what will become the third largest lithium producer. The deal diversifies the company's assets at a time when everyone is scrambling to grow output. But it's not that easy with challenges around permitting as well as long lead times to get new mines online. Chris Berry, president of advisory House Mountain Partners, said he believes we'll see more consolidation in the industry for a few reasons. Companies are looking for geographic and geologic diversity, meaning both brine and hard rock operations in different locations. Given lithium demand projections, companies are also focused on high-grade and long-life mines. He said security of supply is the number one worry in the industry today. Now, in addition to the Live and Alcom deal, giant Albemarle has submitted three unsuccessful bids for Australia-based Liontown this year. Albemarle is the world's largest lithium producer, with SQM and Gongfeng also large players. Then we also have some smaller players in various stages of production, and that includes Lithium Americas, Piedmont, and Ioneer. All right, Pippa, stick with us right now. Let's talk a lot more about the potential for even more M&A activity in the lithium sector with Cole McGill. He's a metal and mining analyst with Stiefel. Cole, good morning. Morning, guys. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. All right, so kind of lay it out for us. Pippa just kind of spelled out some of the, the cash that these companies have in the bank right now. Is that setting us up for maybe a super cycle of M&A in this space? Yeah, so I, I think it's a pretty, a pretty interesting situation right now in the lithium space. Um, you've got three main factors in my mind colliding. Um, so what we've seen in China with respect to spot pricing, we've actually seen uh, pricing week over week um, increase for the first time since about December or, or last, last, uh, last year. Um, so that negative rate of change has now plateaued. Um, and second off, we've also seen uh, Chile now um, introduce policy to try and increase state ownership of what they deem as strategic projects. Remember, Chile produced around 33% of the world's uh, lithium last year. So that's, that's a pretty important player within the, the global lithium space. Um, and then third, and this is what's actually really interesting and piquing our interest on the space right now, is that the size of the lithium industry now actually warrants purchase by the diversified miners, right? So back six, seven years ago, everyone thought this industry could have been a flash in the pan. That's not the case now, right? ALB, Albemarle, you just mentioned, they generated over $3 billion in EBITDA last year. Rio's base metal unit generated over $6 billion in EBITDA. Um, and Valley's base metal unit generated around 500 million EBITDA. So the, the size of these lithium businesses are now effectively war- warranting purchase. And on the M&A side, I think if you look at the way the space kind of shakes out, um, there's two main types of M&A avenues that I kind of see moving this year. Um, the first is that, as you guys mentioned, um, your lithium incumbents, so your ALB and your SQM, um, they buy on the doorstep of new EV supply chain buildouts, mm-hmm. right? So the incentives okay. we're seeing with respect to Biden's IRA, um, and then also major diversified miners. Okay. Um, now seeing the industry as too big to ignore. One second. I want to kind of broaden this conversation outside of just lithium. We still have Pippa here. So, so Pippa, lithium is yeah. not the only commodity industry where we're seeing increased M&A. Why now? Yeah, well, I mean, we saw the Newmont and Newcrest deal that was announced earlier this week. And it feels like, as Cole was mentioning, these companies are sitting on a lot of cash. And there's also now this urgency, particularly around metals that are vital to the energy transition. So while the Newmont-Newcrest deal, you know, they are the largest gold producers, it also gave Newmont a lot of new access to copper. And so we are seeing a lot of pushing behind things like copper and lithium and nickel and graphite and kind of these metals that are essential for 
battery production. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's one area of focus where that now companies are sitting on higher cash. They're looking for larger deals to diversify their assets. They have cash flow, so they have more capability to kind of undertake some of these larger acquisitions. Yeah. So, I mean, we're talking about large acquisitions. Cole, you were kind of saying the same story. We also had a guest on Worldwide Exchange just a few days ago talking about just a general super cycle for commodities, including platinum. What's your outlook when it comes to platinum? Not as well versed on the platinum side, but I think the way you can think about it is these metals are critical to the EV revolution, right? And at the end of the day, um, there's a saying in the industry, those who have the rock win. Um, That's where you're going to see, I would say, the, uh, the, the, the cost pressure. So anything else we need to look out for when it comes to M&A right now and everything that's going on in this space? Obviously, the, the, the emergence of EVs are a driver. Is there any other factor that would lead to an increased interest, not only in M&A, but just in uh, our potential rise in the commodity prices themselves? Yeah, I think you're going to start to see um, a bit of a bifurcation with respect to commodity, commodity prices, especially on the critical metal side um, by a geographic basis. Um, what we're seeing right now with respect to the rise of China controlling the, the EV processing um, and, and, and supply chains, effectively, most lithium needs to go through China before it can get into an EV that rolls on the road um, anywhere in the U.S., right? Um, so the domestication, domestication of supply chains, um, IRA incentives, those are all things that are now effectively trying to vertical uh, vertically integrate um, your supply chain. So you're seeing um, OEMs like GM's $650 million um, uh, equity investment into LAC or Lithium Americas. These are now new sources of capital that the space didn't have previously that can also kind of supercharge that M&A um, cycle that you were talking about. So, Pippa, you're just nodding when he was saying that. Yeah, well, just following up on that, Cole, when you talk about OEMs having partnerships with upstream miners, do you think there's any worlds in which they take that one step further and actually look to acquire those upstream assets in order to secure their supply looking forward? Yeah, I mean, 100 percent. Right. I think that's the natural way that this this progression goes. I mean, when you think about it, too, this is effectively history repeating itself. Right. Ford did this with uh, rubber plantations in in Brazil um, 100 years ago. Right. So this isn't really new, um, I would say. Um, You've obviously probably heard of uh, Tesla being in the news with respect to um, potentially acquiring um, Sigma resources. Um, that was a rumor that came out around two months ago. Um, Tesla also just um, announced the groundbreaking of a, of a lithium refinery um, down in Texas. So, you know, they need spodumene feed to go into that hydroxide refinery. Um, so it would naturally make sense um, for, uh, for a company like that to, to take out a mine. All right, Cole McGill, we've got to leave the conversation there. Thank you to you. Thank you to Pippa Stevens. All right, coming up here on Worldwide Exchange, the one word that every investor needs to know today. Plus, our next guest on why the Fed is set to return to the spotlight when it comes to driving the market action. And if you haven't already, follow our podcast. If you miss Worldwide Exchange, check us out on Apple, Spotify, or other podcast apps. And CNBC is celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander heritage throughout the month of May. As we had to break, here is CNBC's Senior Vice President of Business Transformation and Corporate Affairs, Osman Ansari. I want to talk about some career advice I received early in my career that really spoke to me as an Asian American in the workforce. And it centered around two things. The first was finding the activities that you are good at. What are your natural strengths, the things that you will build your career and your craft around? And the second was finding the natural complementary activities that create commercial value for those. And when you overlay the two together, you find a sweet spot of things that provide value to an employer that you will get paid for doing and you can build a career around. All right, welcome back to Worldwide Exchange. Time now for your WEX wrap-up, six stories you need to know before the opening bell. 
Amazon's cloud computing unit will invest $13 billion in India by the end of the decade. That boosts its total investment in the country to more than $16 billion and will support over 100,000 full-time jobs a year. Chinese shipmaker Hua Hong Semiconductor receiving approval from the Shanghai Stock Exchange for a more than $2 billion secondary listing, the second largest offering in the country's semiconductor sector on record. Netflix says it has nearly 5 million monthly active users on its ad-supported tier globally since it launched about six months ago, with the tier's member base more than doubling since January. Montana has passed a new law banning TikTok within its borders, making it illegal for Apple and Google's app stores to offer TikTok as a digital download starting in January. Montana is the first state to pass legislation against the platform. Paramount Global Chairwoman Sherry Redstone is betting big on her company stock, buying up $2.5 million worth of shares earlier this week as the stock hovers near a fresh 52-week low. And President Biden arriving in Japan this morning for a shortened visit to Asia as he looks to bolster U.S. allies amid China's growing military and economic ambitions. The president sitting down with Japan's prime minister earlier this hour. All right, we're gearing up for the trading day ahead on the economic front at 8.30 a.m. Eastern. We get weekly initial jobless claims and Philly Fed manufacturing data. Then at 10, it's existing home sales figures. On the earnings front, results from Walmart, Alibaba, Applied Materials, and Ross Stores. Then at 9.30, the Senate Banking Committee holds a hearing on oversight of financial regulators featuring testimony from FDIC Chair Martin Grunberg and Fed Vice Chair for Supervision Michael Barr. And speaking of the Fed, we hear from Fed Governor Philip Jefferson and Dallas Bank President Lori Logan this morning. Then this afternoon, we get the latest look at the central bank's balance sheet. Our next guest says those Fed speeches will be a key catalyst in the markets today. Greg Sarian is the CEO of 213 Strategic Partners, and he joins us now. Greg, good morning. Good morning, Frank. Thank you for having me back. All right. With everything we laid out, I just want to ask, how are you seeing today ahead? Uh, what's your Wex word of the day? Uh, our, our word today is calculating. I think investors need to be really thoughtful and calculate and, and really dissect the information from these Fed meetings, from these earnings reports, because I think we're at a pivotal time in markets between what the Fed's going to do next in the June meeting and what that means going forward to, to policy as well as the debt ceiling. I think there's a huge chasm between saying we're not going to default and having real true clarity on spending decisions. All right. So let's dig in a little bit deeper into that. Um, the debt ceiling is one of many things that investors have in their quote unquote wall of worry. How are you advising your clients to protect their portfolios? Great question. Important question, Frank. So we believe the market may be, have been a little bit optimistic these last several days in, in interpreting what does it mean that we're not going to default? Because in these types of negotiations, as we've seen historically, the devil's in the details. And, and again, there's a wide gap between saying we're not going to default and then the president not being back in town until Sunday, coming up with a real deal with detailed spending and entitlement decisions. And that volatility over these next several days could be significant for markets. We do believe that a deal will be done, to be clear. We do believe there'll be no default. That being said, what those decisions look like and their ultimate ripple effects, we're far from having clarity. And I think the markets may have over-anticipated uh, clear decisions at this point. All right. I want to go back to your portfolio protection ideas. One of the things you hit on was private credit. We don't talk a lot about that here on CNBC. Um, give our audience a sense of how you can invest in private credit and why it's important right now. I would assume a lot of it has to do with some of the disruption in the banking sector. That's exactly right, Frank. So everyone's aware of the challenges these regional banks have faced and frankly will continue to face. We are in a tighter credit environment and a higher interest rate environment. And so over the last year, 
you've seen a number of direct lenders and non-banks really taking space and making loans to, to companies that are solid, but may not have perfect balance sheets that, that JP Morgan and B of A wouldn't necessarily make good loans to. And so there's a, a tremendous opportunity in high quality loans that pay very significant income streams. And so we've been doing this with firms like Blackstone's private credit fund, and it's a way to invest in these higher quality companies generating some monthly income we believe it lowers correlation to a traditional stock and bond portfolio. All right, that's an interesting take there, Greg. So I also want to go to the Fed. Um, a lot of people are expecting a pause when they meet next. What is your outlook? How does that shape your investment theory? No, it's, it's a good question, Frank. So I think it's important to understand we are all of, of the same mind that the Fed should be done. The, clearly, the ripple effect, the damages we're seeing and the slowdown in housing and manufacturing, uh, which we'll likely see today in these reports, is evident. It is our view the Fed will likely pause at the June or July meeting, but here's what's important. That several months from a pause to the first cut has historically been good in stocks. And so we want investors, we're preparing our clients for that pivot. That pivot when the debt ceiling is resolved, the Fed has clearly had a meeting and said, we're done for now. And we think that represents an opportunity for stocks to slowly grind higher into the end of the year. So wait, are you talking about a Fed pivot or just a pivot in what's going on in the economy and when it comes to the markets? So it's important to separate the stock market from the economy. I'm saying when the Fed announces a pause, we hope that's in June. That several months between when they pause and when they start to cut has traditionally been favorable. That we see okay. as a pivot in the stock market. And we think those several months after in the stock market could be very favorable for investors. So what sector sees the biggest upside if we see that pause? So, so Frank, we like the international markets. Uh, we do believe that the dollar probably peaked at the end of last year from a valuation perspective. Uh, we think those are compelling markets compared to our own. And so we think it's appropriate for investors. Most portfolios we see, people have been underweight international because of the dominance of U.S. markets over the last 10 years. And we think the next three to five years could look very different than the last 10 and more upside in international developed markets. All right, Greg Saren, we got to leave the conversation there. Thank you very much. Before we let you go, one last look at the futures. Right now, looking uh, green across the board, the Dow up fractionally, the NASDAQ and the S&P pretty much neck to neck, both up about just under a quarter of a percent. That's going to do it for us here on Worldwide Exchange. We've got Squawk Box coming up next. Thank you for watching. You've been listening to CNBC's Worldwide Exchange. You can always catch us live weekdays at 5 a.m. Eastern only on CNBC. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.